everything you do, so in, so in everything, do unto others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law of the prophets. And enter through the narrow gate. For the wide gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many, many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only few find it. Watch out for the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. And a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by, your fruit, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it's it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Pastor Brett. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lane. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am so excited to be here with you this morning. Uh, last week, Pastor Emmanuel was with us, and I heard that God did some incredibly powerful things and breakthrough things with our people. I'm so glad that our brother Emmanuel was able to be here with us and that you guys were gracious to him as well. Um, we're going to be continuing today in our series called The Upside Down Kingdom, where we're unpacking the seminal teachings teachings of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is going to conclude the Sermon on the Mount section of this series, which I'm so grateful for the, the teachings of Jesus that have brought us this far. I'm going to be kind of sad to see this passage of Matthew go, but I'm also really excited because the series is going to continue as we head into Advent, which is the season of time leading up to Christmas, where we acknowledge the coming of Jesus, the arrival of Christ to this world in the form of a human. And uh, the reason why we're going to keep the series is because really it's a continuation. We've been talking about what it is to be a part of this kingdom of heaven that Christ is preaching about. And as we head into Christmas, we're going to be talking about what it means to receive a king in a way that is also upside down compared to the kingdoms of this world. Now, last week, Emmanuel ended on a verse um, that we're going to start with today. And it's come to be known as the golden rule, right? This passage is in verse 12. It says, uh, therefore, in everything... Do to others as you would have them do to you. 
For this sums up the law and the prophets. That's a pretty important statement. Everything in the scriptures, in the law and the prophets, is summed up in these words, to do to others what we would have them do to us. So it can't be that easy then. (laughs) It's got to be challenging if this is what Jesus says sums up the law and the prophets. At the beginning of this sermon, he begins with these things called the Beatitudes, if we remember, right? They're called the blessings, right? Blessed are those who. These are what Jesus starts with. And the last of these blessings, he says, blessed are you when people curse you, insult you, and speak all kinds of evil falsely against you because of me. He's letting them know right off the bat, if you choose to enter into this kingdom to receive the blessing of this king, it is the path less traveled. It is a path that will upset many. And then he gives these teachings about how what, we, what we're to do and who we're to be when it comes to being these citizens of, these, of this upside-down kingdom. And he says, I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them, to restore them to their true purpose. So he deconstructs what the hypocrites do and teaches that the law is not, mentally, not um, meant only to alter the appearance of the outer life, but to transform the substance of the inner life. The law is fulfilled when it no longer exists in my life as something that I feel obligated to do, but rather what naturally flows out of me because who of Christ is making me to be. The golden rule is something that flows out of an inner transformation. I learn to give others what God has given me. I know what real love is because I've met and been changed by real love, God himself. And it's then and only then that can I actually love others the way that they need to be loved. And so at the end of this teaching, he's reminding his listeners again, this is the path less traveled. This is the small gate. This is the narrow way. And he talks about these false prophets who are like wolves in sheep's clothing. He describes true followers of Jesus and false followers of Jesus. He describes the strength and resilience of those who built their house on his word and the destruction that awaits those who don't. These words are sobering. They're challenging. And I think it's important for us to pay attention to these words for us today. Because we live in a country, we live in a city that is well-churched, right? Churches everywhere, every corner. There's an intersection over here where there's like three churches that are all within like eyesight of each other, right? There are lots of people who claim to be Christians and go to church on Sunday, but how many of us become the kind of people who eat, breathe, and bleed this way of Christ? Who really know in our bones this golden rule? Who live out what it is to be loved by God and to share that love with others? How many of us have actually allowed the love of God to transform our hearts, to resurrect our mindsets, our habits, our perceptions, and our purpose? If you were to bump into Jesus on the street, would you recognize him? Would he recognize you? Or have we settled for a version of Christianity which is comfortable, yet unexceptional, and ineffectual in this world? Is the kingdom we've built one that Christ would claim the throne of? Or is, is it one that he would cleanse, like he did the temple in Jerusalem? 
So the difficult yet very important question that we're going to be wrestling with today is this. What does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus? We're going to go through these teachings in this last passage section by section and and explore what the implications are for us today. But first, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. We pray that you would minister to our hearts and minds, that you would begin and continue the work of renewal and transformation in us. May we be made to look more like you, to be more like you. We love you. We pray for a miraculous work of your spirit right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So what does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus? I'm going to give you the answer right off the bat. It means that we become citizens of his kingdom. Becoming a follower of Jesus means entering into the citizenship of Christ's kingdom. This is important. This is a whole new category of existence. When I say yes to Jesus, I give him everything. See, being a follower of Jesus is not an elite club that I get into. It's an allegiance. It's in a way of life. It's an identity. But if I'm not careful, Christianity can start to look more like an elite club. Christianity can start to look kind of like my Costco membership, right? Don't get me wrong. I love my Costco membership. I do. I pay my annual dues, and I get the perks of being a Costco member, right? I get the bulk discounts. I get the tire service. I get the low gas prices. I get the car with my name on it, which proves that I'm a member that they check on the door on the way in sometimes. It means that I get samples, free samples of food every day of the week until 6 p.m., right? It means that a date night for me and Jay went from $40 at a sit-down restaurant to three bucks for two of the best all-beef hot dogs you could possibly imagine. <laughs> Limitless relish and onions, right? I bump into other like-minded people in the aisles who have the same genius business sense that I do, right? We make small talk in the dairy section about how great it is that we can buy 400 eggs for a nickel. And my faith, I'm so silly, my faith can start to look like that, can't it? I can go to church every Sunday and make small talk by the coffee station about how great Ashley's singing is or how incredibly intelligent and charming the lead pastor is. And I give every once in a while so I can check that off my religious to-do list. I even get a certificate with my name on it when I get baptized that proves that I'm part of the people. Wow, they're having a party downstairs. Um, by the way, all those things are awesome. They're great. None of those, things are, of those things in themselves are bad. In fact, they're things that we should celebrate. But if they are all Christ means to me, if they are all this faith is, I've completely missed the point of what it means to be a Christian. Because to be a Christian means that I am to follow Christ And if all these luxuries and perks of the church went away tomorrow, what would my faith mean to me? What would it look like? What Jesus is after when it comes to his followers is a radical shift in the very core of our soul, which affects everything we perceive, do, and are. It's an immigration from our former lives into a new place. That's what it is. What Jesus is not looking for is fans who cheer on the kingdom from the sidelines. 
people who like to visit the kingdom and vacation there on Sundays. What Jesus is looking for are those who will take on a new identity, a new citizenship, where they leave behind the allegiances and ideologies and gods of their former lives and enter into a new kingdom under his trust, his provision, his law, his hope. And this kingdom is not somewhere far away or sometimes someday. It's right here and right now, upside down, coexisting with the kingdoms of man. This kingdom is wherever its citizens choose to put their feet. And by doing that, I choose a path which is narrow. It means I choose to live in a kingdom that has no borders, has no jurisdiction, has no military, has no government, is not recognized by the United Nations. To choose citizenship in Christ's kingdom is to choose a life of political exile. To have a home in a kingdom that is here, but not fully here. That is now, but not quite yet. When we choose to become citizens of heaven, we choose a life of exile. And when we first read this passage that was just read, what can sometimes crop up in us, I think, is this fear, right? What if I'm one of those false followers of Jesus? What if I'm one of those false prophets that he's describing? And I agree with Dr. Keener, who wrote that this teaching was intended to jar us out of complacency. In fact, the whole point of this sermon is to draw us into a place of self-examination to ask really big and difficult questions about our faith and our existence. Have, have I really stepped into the fullness of life that Christ has for me? Have I received all of what he wants to give me, or am I still messing around on the surface? See, people in Jesus' day, they didn't have this language yet. Christianity wasn't really a thing yet. But what Jesus is really confronting here is something that we call cultural Christianity. It's this idea that because I'm a Christian, it's because I was born into a Christian family or because I go to church on Sundays or celebrate Christmas instead of Hanukkah or pray to Jesus before I eat or whatever. None of those things make me a Christian. They're all great, and they all contribute to my faith, and I'm very grateful that I personally was raised in a Christian household with parents who loved God. I love coming to church on Sundays to be encouraged by the saints and to worship alongside all of you to glorify God. Yes, yes, and amen. But this does not make me a Christian. Jesus, throughout the whole sermon, challenges this idea of religious hypocrisy, right? He challenges the notion that I can go through the motions of religion and even give to the poor and uphold moral behavior, but outwardly transforming is not what Jesus is after. What he's after is the transformation of the inner life. If the inner life is not redeemed, we've missed the point. Because we don't passively or accidentally happen upon a robust citizenship of God's kingdom. The gate is small. The road is narrow. The way of the kingdom is not easy or popular or unintentional. It's difficult. It meets resistance. And it requires discipline and commitment. Jesus uses this analogy of wide gates and wide uh, paths and narrow gates and narrow roads because these sorts of dichotomies were very common in Jewish literature and teaching. They're pretty much in every step of every lesson here in the Sermon on the Mount. We're given choices all the time. We're told that we can't serve two masters, that we should carry out good works in humility and not in, in pride uh, pub publicly. We're told that we have to be forgive, to, to, sorry, that we have to forgive if we want to be forgiven, and if we don't forgive, that we won't be forgiven. That we can trust God as our Father, or we cannot trust God as the pagans do. And in this passage, we're given a choice between two gates, 
two roads, two trees, and two foundations. There's a choice. It is either Jesus and the way of the kingdom, or it's everything else. That's the choice he's giving us. Now, why, why is this gate narrow? Is it to emphasize that the kingdom of heaven is this exclusive club? Or is it to emphasize that few are willing to pick up what it means to be a citizen of this kingdom? See, sometimes reading this, I feel like I might have a genuine desire to follow Jesus, but then after I pass away, I get to the gates and I find that there's a loophole that I fell through, that I didn't check the right box to get in. And remember, the Sermon on the Mount is deconstructing this kind of thinking, that it's about technicality or, or, or religious legality, right? That's not what this is about. It's not about loopholes. It's about the transformation of the inner life and the heart. To say yes to Jesus is to shift everything, to shift our allegiance and to begin this work of transformation. To choose the kingdom is to not choose everything else. What's narrow about this path is not the process by which I get in. That's easy. What's narrow about this path is the cost of what I have to leave behind. Because we leave behind a lot to enter into this citizenship. We leave behind the right to hate our enemies. We leave behind the right to hold a grudge. We leave behind the pursuit of pleasure. We leave behind the love of money. We leave behind self-importance. We leave behind self-rule. We submit ourselves to him. The narrow gate and the narrow path is not about an elite gospel, which boxes people out based on technicality. No, the narrow gate is about the great cost of being a citizen of this kingdom. Scott McKnight wrote this, There is one reason the gate is narrow. It is demanding discipleship. What is discipleship? Discipleship is the process by which I become like the person I am following. In our case, this is Jesus. I'm becoming like Jesus. And Jesus took a very difficult path, didn't he? In Matthew 16, Jesus teaches us this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. If we want to follow Jesus into the newness of resurrection life, the fullness of life for us, we first have to follow him into crucifixion. The day in the life of the citizen of heaven is that we follow Jesus, yes, into his victory and into his hope, but it is through crucifixion. Jesus is not exclusive concerning whom gets offered the gift of salvation, but human beings are often unwilling to submit ourselves to the fullness of that gift. See, anyone can get on the team, but no one can force you to run the drills and play the games. You can wear the jersey, but you won't be experiencing the fullness of what it means to be a part of the team if you don't do the work of becoming the kind of player that can contribute to the game. The gift of salvation, friends, don't get me wrong, is free. But participation in the kingdom of heaven, this is costly. It's that idea from Dallas Willard, right, that grace is opposed to our earning it, but it is not opposed to our effort showing up to it. Because we tend to think of freedom as a freedom to, right? I'm free to do what I want. 
any old time. Thank you. I was like, someone finished the line. Um, right? We, we get, I'm free to do what I want. You ever like hear that phrase when someone's like doing something that's bothering you? Like, hey, can I sit here? Yeah, it's a free country or whatever, right? Like we're free to do what we want. But biblical freedom is not just a freedom to do things. It's a freedom from. I'm free from addiction, from oppression, from bondage, from sin, from death itself. In order to choose life, I need to leave death behind. Jesus offers us this free gift of forgiveness and redemption, and my response, my worship of him, is that I give up what is behind me. I become a citizen of a kingdom that is upside down. A kingdom that is given to me freely, no stipulations, No asylum procedures, no documentation, no background checks, no prerequisites. But by choosing to enter his nation, I'm stepping out of every other. By choosing to accept this gift of union with the Father, I'm giving up union with the world. By uh, choosing to worship the Trinity as the one true God, I'm denouncing all other gods. Because as Jesus preached in this last chapter, we cannot have two masters. We will be devoted to one and despise the other. This resurrection life is offered to us without our earning, without our merit, without exceptions. It is absolutely free, and it costs us everything. And few are willing to accept the cost of this free gift. And the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the work that Jesus begins in us, this work of transformation, it's uncomfortable. It's not fun. The work of confession And repentance and reconciliation, it's hard. It requires humility. It requires discipline. It requires commitment. And this is why Jesus says that in order to follow him, you have to be willing to deny yourself. Timothy Keller, he died this last year. He wrote this. He said, Christianity is narrow in a vital way. It's narrow in that it demands focus and authenticity and intensity and full commitment and discipline. Anybody who has accomplished anything in your life, you know that the narrow gate is the way into fullness. The reason why Jesus has such a high call for a transformed life that is renewed in every facet and every aspect of what we do is not because he wants to demand much of us so that he can rule over us. He wants us to flourish. He wants this life to to yield everything that it can. He wants you to have as much joy and peace, and hope as is humanly possible. And he knows that the way in which we do this is by submitting ourselves to him, by saying yes to the process, by committing to the discipline required for this inner work. But Lane, I thought his yoke was easy and his burden was light. What about all that stuff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely true. His yoke is easy and light especially when compared to the yokes of this world. There's this famous teaching, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what he says. But what is a yoke? I'll show a picture of a yoke. So these are two oxen. This is like a first century equivalent yoke. Basically, they used this to plow their fields, farmers did, right? Now, a yoke is easy and light in Christ, yes, but it's still a yoke. We still show up to our purpose, to our mandate. We still have work to do when we come alongside Jesus. 
And this is one where Christ bears the burden alongside us. It's lighter than any yoke of the world. It's lighter than any yoke of oppression, yoke of addiction, yoke of violence. Those yokes are way worse. And those yokes we carry alone. With Christ, we bear the yoke of hard work, but we bear it alongside Jesus who bears it with us. And this work leads us to a life of meaning. It leads us to a life that is fulfilling. As Christ tells his disciples, it's one in which we have the fullness of joy. And that's why Jesus is so hard on dead religion. Why James the Apostle critiques faith without works. And why he is so opposed to giving and doing without being. The whole sermon, he's been talking about the teachers in the, in the, of the law and the Pharisees. He's been using them to draw this contrast between what our Heavenly Father desires of us and what dead religion produces. The theologian Louis A. Bar- Barbieri Jr. said this, It was obvious Jesus was comparing the wide gate and the broad road to the outward righteousness of the Pharisees. If those listening to Jesus followed the Pharisees' teachings, their path would lead to destruction. The narrow gate and the road referred to Jesus' teaching, which emphasized not external requirements, but an internal transformation. Trying to work without union in Christ will break your back. And trying to be union with Christ, have union with Christ without doing the work, is not possible. We need an infusion. An infusion? We need a fusion, there it is, of being and doing, where who we are and what we do flow out of one another. Because one can outwardly change their their lives, how they appear on the outside, but a genuine transformation of the heart, which flows from the good work of the Spirit, that's what Christ is after for all of us. That's why the path is narrow. That's why the gate is small. And then Jesus, he talks about these these true and these false prophets. He calls them wolves and sheep's clothing. And he uses this analogy of trees that bear good fruit or bad fruit. And he tells his followers to be watchful. For these false prophets. Now, scholars hotly debate who these false prophets are because they hotly debate everything. But Jesus spoke about fa- false prophets and teachers often. And so, the time that Matthew was writing this, Matthew must have seen a lot of falsehood circulating in Christian leadership. We see Paul critiquing this. Most Jews believed at this time, at the time of the prophets, where God was speaking through human beings, like one person on his behalf, that that time was over, that, that it ended in the Old Testament. But there was this idea that there were a lot of false prophets that persisted. A lot of the Pharisees and religious leaders thought that John the Baptist was a false prophet. And there was this common saying that Jesus didn't invent, that they're like wolves in sheep's clothing. But what does it mean to be a false prophet? What does it mean to be a false teacher? Well, you can actually look this up for yourself. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 13. It gives the stipulations for what false prophets are. But I'll give you the gist. It means this. False prophets lead you to other gods. False prophets lead you to other gods. And the teaching implies, based on how much he critiques the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that they have become false prophets. But how did the Pharisees, the teachers of Israel, go from being the teachers of the scriptures to becoming false prophets? Well, they failed to recognize God when he walked into the room. They stopped leading people to God. When we fail to recognize the divine nature of one member of the Trinity, we lose sight of what it means to speak for God. They didn't recognize him. This mode of false prophet, it's also not restricted to Judaism, right? 
We see in some of Paul's writings that people are preaching the gospel of Jesus for selfish reasons. There's whole councils that are assembled during the 4th century to refute blasphemy and false doctrine of the Trinity. Any teacher who leads us to other gods is false, but sometimes this can be tricky because we have false teachers that are teaching in the name of Jesus, yet they're leading people away from Christ's teachings. And that can be difficult. We see the Apostle James warning the early church about dangerous winds of doctrine, right? I want to take a little side note here. This is why we think it's really important to foster a community of accountability here at Red Hills. This is why we encourage questions, big ones. This is why I encourage you and our pastors encourage you not to agree with everything that is said on the pulpit just because it's said from the pulpit. We actually put our teaching under a lot of scrutiny. There's a volunteer team here that's theologically trained. They give us feedback on the teachings every single week. We're endeavoring to foster a leadership community that values humility, that's teachable, that's learning. Humility humility is really important because God's going to oppose the proud, but he'll exalt the humble, right? And as, as we invite this kind of culture of engagement and critique, do know that the whole planks and splinters thing, this still applies, Judge graciously, right? There's a respectful way and a gracious way to engage with leadership, even to challenge leadership. And just because you would disagree with something we're doing or saying doesn't mean that you're right. It could be. But what I hope we're doing is fostering a community where this kind of interaction and pushback and collaboration is commonplace, where we can have really robust dialogue and civil discourse and maintain unity where we can have tension around the non-essentials, but have unity in the essentials. This is what we're hoping for. This is why we also think that that leadership accountability is really important. This is why I love being a part of our denomination of Foursquare. There is a ladder of accountability that I'm accountable to, that our pastors are accountable to, and there are systems and, and processes by which people can report unethical behavior, abuse, things like this. There's actually, um, because of everything that happened in the last decade or so, and obviously longer than that, but especially this last decade around kind of leadership corruption in some of these big churches, uh, Foursquare decided to get on this healthy leadership initiative where we create pathways for people to report unethical or abusive behavior. And we want you to know that you have direct access to this. If you have um, a problem that you feel like isn't being heard from your leadership, if you have abuse that's going on that you want to talk to the denomination about, you can actually email story at foursquare.org to let the denomination know what's going on and you don't feel safe to... My hope is that you would feel comfortable and safe to come to leadership with things that are going on. But if you ever feel like you're backed into a corner, you have a way to keep your leaders accountable. You can also keep us accountable when it comes to theology and doctrine by going to the council. If you feel like what's being taught up here is heresy or blasphemy or departing from orthodox biblical theology, you can ask someone, who's a council member that I can talk to about this? And the council can report to the district about what's going on here. Same thing when it goes to polity. If you feel like what's going on here is violating our four-square polity, that you can report those things. Now, we are endeavoring to not do that. (laughs) We're endeavoring to to do everything that we do with excellence and integrity, and we're trying to provide really solid biblical teaching and and excellence and all of that. But we also understand that we're human beings. We're going to make mistakes, and your participation and accountability is really, really important for a healthy church which is why we encourage this. Now, this doesn't mean that our pastors and Christian leaders can't have a bad day or make mistakes, right? We're not, we're not shooting for legalism. If I'm in the parking lot and stub my toe and a not-so-pastoral word comes out, 
please don't pick it. False prophet. Like, that's not what we're encouraging. <laughs> I'm still, we're, we're working on me still too, you know. But, but like this willful sin, corruption, ongoing abuse, these are things that we need to take very seriously. Jesus is, is telling his followers to, in this section to pay attention to the fruit of their leaders. Are they themselves people who are being changed by the inner work of Christ's love? Are they bearing fruit in their life as evidence to that reality? What's a problem is those who claim to preach or teach and lead in Jesus' name, but they don't have any interest in the lordship of Jesus. This is someone who has immoral or unethical or, or intentionally harmful motives. They're hiding ongoing affairs, perpetuating abusive cultures. They're embezzling money. They're manipulating people emotionally for personal gain. They're capitalizing on their gifts and talents for personal acclaim and popularity. These things are a problem. This is not what really following Jesus looks like. And the scary thing is that one can do all of those things and still appear to be a follower of Jesus. This is why Jesus is telling us to pay attention to the fruit. Because the way of Jesus is like this. If it doesn't come out now, it'll come out later. There is going to be justice. My dream for our community, friends, is that we would walk away from our Sunday services not astonished by how great our leaders are. But rather, we'd be astonished by the goodness of God. Not the skill of our preachers, or the musicians, or the production value, or the service flow, but that we would experience new and higher revelations of God's goodness and glory. That we would be moved by his spirit, not by our production quality. Paul in 1 Corinthians he even challenges this. He says, I did not come to preach the gospel with eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, the power of the cross doesn't need our eloquence. It speaks for itself. And some of us are really attracted to preachers and teachers who know how to turn a phrase. It's great, but are they leading you to Christ? Are they leading you to discipleship? Are you being led to the narrow gate? the narrow path. This Christian life is not just about doing things differently than the world. It is that. But it's also about who I'm becoming. Am I knowing Christ? Am I being transformed because I'm in his presence? Do I know the God whom I'm claiming to worship? Dr. Michael Heiser wrote this. He says, the implications of the passage are that true prophets have stood and listened in Yahweh's counsel whereas false prophets have not. Do we know God? And do we do what he says? There is this ancient prayer we find in Deuteronomy 4 and Jesus references later. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then Jesus says, and then love your neighbor as yourself. The word hear, hear, O Israel, is the word listen and obey put together. So to hear, O Israel, was to hear the words of God and to do what it says. You could not divorce the two. And we see this tension that Jesus is wrestling with in being and in doing. He says, there are people that are going to come to me on the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, and say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, whoa, only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
But then people who come to him say, God, we did a bunch of stuff in your name. Do we get to get it? And he says, no, I never knew you. So we see that what we need is an integration of knowing and doing. That our doing comes out of the overflow of our relationship with Christ, not the other way around. Am I a human being or a human doing? Yes. Yes. You are a human being who does from the overflow of who God is creating you to be. And then Christ gives this powerful and sobering illustration at the end of this sermon. He gives us another choice. He says, you build your life on my words and my wisdom and my life and you will be stable. Storms can rise, rains can come, streams can rise, and you will not fall because you have your foundation on me, on something that lasts, on something that endures. But if you build your life on anything else, you will crumble. The foundation will give way beneath you. And ruin will await you. This is meant to be sobering. It's meant to be serious. It's also meant to be an anchor of hope for us. Because many of us have experienced storms in life, right? This metaphor is not hard to understand. All of us have suffered. All of us have experienced loss and trauma and grief and disappointment and trial sickness. You've endured these things, and if you haven't, you will. We suffer. But when we have our hope and trust in Christ, we don't crumble. I know what it's like to suffer and to start crumbling and to realize, maybe I don't trust Jesus as much as I think I do. And perhaps this is what this message is a reminder for us today. Perhaps we've allowed the ember of our fire, our passion for Christ to wane. And we find more and more that we're being moved by the situations around us. That we're being knocked off kilter by stress, by anxiety, by loss, and by grief. Again, Not a sin to feel emotions. It's not what I'm talking about. If you cry when sad things happen, that's good and healthy and even biblical. But if you find that you're losing your sense of hope in this world, if you find that everything feels meaningless, if you find yourself questioning the value of life, if you find yourself questioning that there's a way out, if you find yourself forgetting the promises of Christ, this is maybe evidence that you're starting to build your house on something that is not him. I know that that's the, play, that that's the case for me sometimes. When life tests us, it will reveal what we've built our house on. And Christ is reaching down into human existence and he's saying, build it on me. Come to me. Stick close to me, know me, and I will take care of you. The worst could happen to you, and I will not leave you in it. Because it happened to me, and then I defeated it. 
literally the worst thing the enemy and that the world had to offer, death itself, Jesus suffered it and then proved it ineffective against his power, against his love, against his life. That's who Christ is. And when we build our house on that, how can we fall? There is nothing, nothing we cannot face. But again, it requires that we do the building. We have to be on the rock and we have to do the work. Otherwise, we don't reap the fullness of the life that he has for us. So we're going to take communion as a reminder of what Jesus did. He established himself as the firm foundation, as the cornerstone, as the place from which we build our houses by proving himself to be the God who defeats death and who ushers in new life. If you're not a Christian at this time, uh, I'm really grateful that you're here. And I'm just going to ask that you hold these elements in your hand and refrain from taking them at the moment. Because this act is supposed to be something that is done by followers of Jesus. And this is what this is all about. When we eat of his body and drink of his blood, we remember the cost What it is to be a follower of Jesus is to pick up our cross and to follow him. We pick up the way of crucifixion so that we can inherit the resurrection life. And in that life, there is nothing that can stand in our way. So this is the hope that we build our foundation on today. After worship, there's going to be people up here to pray. Perhaps there are those of us who have never really given ourselves fully to Christ. We've tinkered around. We've vacationed in the kingdom every once in a while. But you're ready to become a citizen. You're ready to devote your allegiance and your identity to Christ. We would love to pray with you and take that step with you. Perhaps there are those who just feel that their passion has waned that they've been trying out building their house on other foundations and they've suffered. And they want a renewal. They want an encouragement. Come up, receive prayer. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this is my blood and the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take a moment to be in silence and to pray to God and to ask the Holy Spirit to move in us and then we'll close in a song. Holy Spirit, we invite you here and we ask that you would speak.